You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 58, covering the week of February 6th through February 10th, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. A couple of housekeeping things before we get started. Of course, uh, we would love it if you would like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, like our YouTube page. That's how we spread our message. So if you are interested in uh, helping us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, the very least you can do is follow us on social media and uh, share our articles around, also this podcast. Also, we exist on your generous contributions alone, so if you would like to make a tax-deductible contribution to the Abbeville Institute, you can go to our webpage to our support section under Memberships for Individuals and Businesses and find a level that you would like to donate uh, to. And also, we have a new email going out five days a week called The Daily Dose of Dixie, which will have a fun article in it or something about the South, whether it's the article of that day or something we've done before. And uh, in that particular email message, we have an opportunity for you to donate monthly. So if you would like, if you can't come up with, say, $50 at one time, uh, that's not always easy to do. We have opportunities for you to donate as little as $5 a month. So you could donate $5 a month, $10, $15, or $20 a month. And if everyone on our social media pages or our email list would do that, just give us $5 a month, we could fund our entire operations for the year and add programs. So um, it's a great way to help us out and keep the Abbeville Institute going. Um, so uh, everything we do from the podcast to the articles to our programs, summer schools, all these things cost money. And so uh, we do need your support. Okay, so the week in review this week, and uh, it's a... Um, on the surface, it looks like a very eclectic week. There's a lot of different stuff going on here. But in reality, the the point of the week was essentially Southern values and Southern wisdom. And um, so we're going to have, uh, we have a, a, a collection of poems, two poems I'll read this week, uh, a number of quotations, and then, of course, a, a more substantial piece on John C. Calhoun, uh, one on a unknown or an unknown uh, black confederate named Holt Collier, and also one on sports. So let's start with the uh, piece that appeared Monday, Tidewater Wit and Wisdom by John Devaney. Um, this is just a collection of quotations from the Virginia and Maryland region, the Tidewater, and that's, of course, where John is from originally. And so uh, this is these are his people. And there's some really interesting stuff here. Um, and I think one thing that that we need to be doing as we go out is and, and talking about the Southern tradition is really explaining to people that the Southern tradition has in it the core concepts of civilization. And what do I mean by that? Well, one of the things that I don't think we do enough is call out people on the left primarily, but also those who are on the right um, typically those who have lost any semblance of civilization and think that quote-unquote conservatism is just um, finance capital or big business. What they have lost is the tenets of civilization that make society comfortable. And so what John has done here is provide some, some words of wisdom 
that would help you live a better life and a more civilized life. And see, it used to be that um, people, men and women, uh, would read uh, um, primers on how to be a good man or a good woman. This was part of growing up. It was part of acquiring manners. Now, you did you did get these things in the home, and not oftentimes people don't get that anymore. And, of course, you know, back in the 70s, Hank Williams Jr. pointed this out when he said, you know, we say grace and we say ma'am. And uh, a lot of people have moved away from that. And so when they come down to the South and people are saying, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, uh, they're, they're taken aback by that because in their region, the North, the West Coast, wherever it is, you don't do that anymore. So the South has held on to these manners. And I was having a conversation the other day with, um, with uh, Dr. Livingston, and he said, you know, that's what we need to do. When somebody stands up and they're vulgar, they're nasty and, uh, in public, and they're doing these things, we just say, look, in the South, we just don't do things like that. The Southern tradition doesn't tolerate things like that. We just don't do it. Uh, that's, not what it's, that's not what it means to be civilized. That's barbaric. And, of course, a barbarian is someone who is uneducated and bathes little, and I think there's a lot of those people running around in modern society, particularly the uneducated part. It's not always their fault because we've moved away from, you know, from having any type of these conversations within our homes and our schools so children are the products of society in which they're brought up in. So one of the things we could do is start teaching children and ensuring that our children in the South are reared, continue to be reared, on these bits of wit and wisdom, as John Devaney calls it. So I'll read some of these, but uh, he starts with um, uh, a couple of uh, lines from Seneca's Dialogues, which he says is a primer for young men in Tidewater, Virginia, Maryland. Quote, an honest man can never be outdone in courtesy. A sensual life is a miserable life, and the contempt of death makes all the miseries of life easy to us. From the school of manners, fear God, reverence the parents, imitate not the wicked, boast not in discourse of thy wit or doings, affront no one by word or deed, be not selfish, but free and generous to others. Um... So here you have what people used to be taught, humility, you're seeing there, um, and courtesy, valor. Of course, this, this did not mean that these men would be wimps, as our uh, piece on Thursday points out. This is what's happening, but uh, because he says, you know, Jefferson advised as to the species of exercise, I advise the gun. Um, so, uh, we, uh, we forget that these people were also very masculine and, and involved in things that we would consider, you know, masculine, uh, forms of exercise today. Uh, Governor William Barkley of Virginia said, we cannot but resent that 40,000 people should be impoverished to enrich more than 40 merchants, who John says are now Wall Street bankers. Uh, so this is the idea that, um, you know, this finance capitalism was going to ruin, ultimately ruin, uh, the South. Uh, for women, she lives in eternal shame that lives to see the death of her good name. And an old proverb from Anne Arundel County, Maryland says, We cannot master time nor tides. So we must master ourselves. Good manners keep us from killing each other. And I think that's, again, the, the point that we're getting to here. We have to have good manners. Of course, uh, H.L. Mencken said, Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone somewhere 
may be happy. Uh, and he has a, a nice quote from Charles Carroll of Carrollton, who was the only Catholic signatory to the Declaration of Independence. Without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. They, therefore, who are decrying the Christian religion, whose morality is so sublime and pure, and which ensures to the good eternal happiness and undermining the solid foundation of morals the best security for the duration of free governments. So this is important. One of the things, again, we're, we're exploring what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, and one of those things that is true and valuable is manners. Uh, it doesn't mean that people in the North didn't have manners, uh, but they've abandoned them. Uh, and I think that when you look at culture, regional culture, the South did have a different perspective on manners, and of course, over time, their adherence to an old traditional form of manners has uh, carried forward more than any other region. And so I think that one thing we could do in an outward display of the Southern tradition is maintain our manners. Learn how to speak to women if you're a man, and if you're a woman, learn how to speak to men. Show respect. And also learn how to speak to each other. There's something nice about it. That, um, one thing that um, a friend of the Abbeville Institute is now, who died last year, Bill Cawthon. If you ever received an email from Bill Cawthon, it was a, it was a wonderful experience because Bill enjoyed the old art of writing an email. And even I'm guilty of uh, sending back an email with one or two sentences and uh, you know no greeting, no no um, no sig no signature. It's uh, just as quick. We've gotten in the habit of doing this because we get so much of this stuff that it's hard to. Uh, maintain formality. Uh, but I will say, you know, John, when you receive emails from John Devaney, Dr. Devaney, he is very formal, and it's refreshing. It's nice. Uh, it makes you feel good. And um, so that's one thing, just little things like that that could um, go a long way in restoring an old traditional order of courtesy and if we did that, I mean, society would be much better off anyways. So the following uh, piece, the, the piece the next day, was a collection of poems written about fall from two of our great scholars in the Louisiana region. And it's about fall time in Louisiana. And when they sent me this, um, this email, uh, they explained that. This was um, uh, something that was reflection on their place and time uh, and their place being North Louisiana, or even South Louisiana, and uh, the time, the fall, and what that means to them, and also how this relates to humanity and our own time on this earth. And so I'm going to read these. I hope that I do them justice. Uh, there, uh, one is uh, uh, very short. The other is a little bit longer, but uh, it won't take me long to get through them. So uh, the first poem is by Robert Peters. And it's entitled, Who Will Hear? Who will hear? From distant ridge to distant ridge, hunting horns serenading with stories before great fires, bobbing over hill and into hollow, the foxhounds' coarse voices, the pitch of the pack rising with the tiring of the stag, watery brakes singing with a million mosquitoes, chip marrying the widow with whippoorwill song in April, shadowtail mimicking the wind in beech trees, an upland creek caressing an old log into bubbling song. Duck winds breezing over a watery pin-oak flat. Old front porch ladies quietly lilting youthful ballads. Kettle bidding good memories with steamy report. 
vespers spreading grace at supper. The heart, sighing slumbers release from ecstasy, weariness or woe. Old bones creaking with joy for the life yet there. A verse reaching to heaven on dying lips. Thin Time by David Middleton Here in these woods the autumn mind grows ripe, dependent on the senses, root and bloom, come from under a ground deeper than dark and light, under the needle floors of short-leaf pine. This is a time of yielding, gathering in, of harvest festival and festive rest, a time of plenty and a time of dearth. The reap fields torched, plucked nuts and berries spread, the woods are dense and hidden in themselves, a resting place for churchyards overgrown, unearthly headstones tilting toward their dust, departing dates and names just barely there. Some say this time is thin time, when the dead and all those dreaded presences we thought buried for good when Christ's thick blood was shed return as old familiars of the soul. But do we meet and prove them on the verge of sight and sound, of taste and touch and smell, the pumpkin's candle tongue and licking grin, wind whispers in the chilling footstone's grooves? Or is this world the only world there is, expanding to, but never through its doom, against the stillness nothing ever moves, the stuff of grave and cradle, fatal breath? Hard answers may lie far in upland trees, shades of the sun and moon's translucencies. Were we both the hunter and the prey, the bow pulled tight, the arrow through the heart. A word in time, point made, first elements, then layered clay and sand, the bedrock's head, tectonic plates pressed upward to a break, the buckling juts of lime and salt and shale, the marl's bone print of species long extinct, the saber-tooth, sloth, elephant, and whale, the holly and the laurel, crimpled hills of oak and gum, boys dark and hickory, red wiggler, cricket, scorpion, oh, toad, the slithering copperhead and moccasin, the silver minnow, bowfin, long-nosed gar, and all across the cloudless flyaway skies, great night migrations, lone bird, v-winged skeins, sojourning home, the coalescing cries of snow goose, hare and sparrow, crane and swan, the ruddy duck and common golden eye over the wild hogs, loose and tawny corn, the black bear clawing down a slippery elm, pawed honey on the tongue, the wary squirrel, the bobcat pouncing on the startled hare. And there, like fallen blossoms of the stars, still twinkling under dark fire, seeded fields, fruitling in a cold autumn dawn, our natives hold their foreign ground below the battle of the masses, zone on zone, the primal sky gods fighting in a rain that soaks the honeysuckle, arrowhead, witch hazel, goldenrod, mistletoe. And this is what we climb these slopes to find, the register of weathers, settings, names, these characters of writing and the soil, this long-disturbed humane geography. Linked kingdoms of Linnaeus Audubon, of Indian rememberers whose words, not taken down, died out with the tribe and tongue. Lost chronicles and catalogues of air. We look upon a most elaborate map, topographies of lichen type and trope, locations graded, raised, and high relief, akin to synonyms and boundary stones. There... Walls are thin, as souls who slip back through on limped winds that wake the morning gourd. Green-shouted yeomen raised on ruin estates, 
unveiling in the veiled and grainy rain. And scattered all about are thickets, glades, places we watch and listen, like bucks, quick-eyed, quick-eared beside the honey holes, alert for a bow and arrows thwish and whoosh. These ways, but long forgotten, never known, still burn with sighs that lead to house and home, interpretations latent in the blaze, configured in the circumpolar fires. And there the centaur draws his arc of stars, courted by night, the limb tips bending in, the flaming shaft aimed at the scorpion's heart, for killing Orion, who would kill the deer. Or else the satyr Crotus, sired by Pan, on Euphemy, who nursed the muses too, Crotus, who armed the archer, found the beat, the plucking of the bowstring and the lyre. And this is where the web of space and time, floating like cosmic gossamer, grows thin. Diaphanous with paths that come and go, the warp and woof of everything that is. And to that end we walk, by slope and floor, from crest to crest in these old northern hills, this given world we take to heart to know, a metaphor that carries us across each way on Charon's boat, faring the red at stellar depths and open camouflage toward ghostly choruses, grand antiphones, gray rays of the porter's gate and gateless shore, whose singing must keep time, in keeping with old solos of the scales of air and ground, concealing and revealing unaware, prophetic, in the martyred light and dark. On Wednesday, we ran a piece by Clyde Wilson entitled The Continuing Relevance of Calhoun's Wisdom. And again, this follows the theme. What did Calhoun have to offer us? And of course, Clyde Wilson, being the greatest living scholar of John C. Calhoun, explains that. Uh, he goes through Calhoun's political philosophy. and But more than that, he explains what Calhoun was doing. And he says this, when Calhoun wrote of society preceding government, he was not theorizing, unlike Rousseau and other pundits. He was recapitulating the experience of his own family and the reality of the founding of America. We need to recover some lost American history. The times are changing vastly since the founding, but perhaps a recovery of forgotten truth about American origins will inspire us to the possibilities of self-government. And that is what we are doing here at the Abbeville Institute. And he says, before the War of Consolidation in the 1860s, Americans prided themselves that their settlements had been built by free men. And so if you relate back to what I just did with the poems, this is a place, it's Louisiana, built, and if you think about those poems and what they were saying, it's of time, it's of place, it's of familiarity. By free men in a free open air. Clyde says, the 13 colonies were not created by people who were the wards or clients or employees of government. Americans were people who conquered a wilderness with their own labor and capital at the risk of their own life and limb. There was a distant crown that theoretically was the fount of land ownership. Otherwise, the colonists were men who had ventured into the wilderness by their own wills and created fresh societies while abdicating none of the rights of Englishmen. From the first, they insisted on representation and making their own laws for the societies they had built. He says, for the Founding Fathers, consent of the governed did not mean political particip participation of the abstract individuals so dear to modern democratic theory. Rather, liberty was defined by the self-determination of communities of men, 
pre-existing historically in all their complexity and differentiation of social roles. Individual liberty meant citizenship in a free community. A community is by nature non-egalitarian and ceases to be free or even, even to exist when an outside power enforces an artificial equality. Liberty is not bestowed by government but is an aspect of a free society itself. And this is exactly what Calhoun was saying over and over again. You know, this is the thing that he was uh, talking about, as he um, and Southerners in general were talking about when they spoke of this term of equality with a capital E, or, uh, sorry, lowercase e, compared to equality as we now think of it with a capital E. Clyde goes on, there are millions of George Bushes and Bob Doles among our fellow countrymen. It is a major American type, perhaps the predominant American type. Such people cannot distinguish human society from the U.S. government, nor nor can they distinguish the U.S. government from their own will. They assume it is their right to force other people to obey their notions of doing good. And for such people of doing good, there there ain't no end. Where does George Bush get the moral authority, much less the constitutional authority, to to use up American blood and treasure in the pursuit of a new world order just because he and others think that is a good thing. His thinking is as flawed, juvenile, self-centered, and delusional as that of any infatuated dictator in history. For him, our land and people are not values in themselves, just a means to carry out his delusions. Bush can get away with it because he is serving the profit of powerful interests, but also because millions of Americans buy into his delusions of national grandeur and their special mission to do good. He says, I, Clyde says, I, su- I suggest to you this is the kind of thinking that is the nemesis of civilization in North America. We must not heed it in rulers, and we must not expunge it from ourselves. And we must expunge it from ourselves, excuse me. My position is at odds with European conservatism, which has made great inroads into American thought. For a European conservative society, government and church are or should be a whole. I submit this is not the American tradition nor the American necessity. The tradition and necessity for a country that has always been made up of diverse communities is to break down and limit power, ultimately the deconstruction of the present regime. So I come back to Calhoun. Society is given by God through human nature for our nurture. Government is needed to keep the peace, but it is also a great danger to society. must revive the wisdom that Leviathan must be chained and disciplined to protect rather than devour us. And we must recognize that the government is never us. Clyde continues, the South was, has kept this wisdom longer than other parts of America, though it was beleaguered even here. The South, in contrast to what we know as America, was, in the words of Emmy Bradford, a thing that was grown, not made. The political philosophy long defended by Southern spokesmen rested on an implicit assumption that government should be the servant and not the master of society, society being the grown product of providence and government being the made construction of man. This is very important. Because more important than anything in society is community and people, hearth and home, the family first, then your community, then your, then your uh, state, then the central order. If you can't sweep around your own porch, if you can't maintain your own house, if you can't have cultural continuity among your own people and somebody else is going to tell you how, you live, how to live, you don't really have community. And this happens all the time. People don't recognize it, and that's because we often look to the center to solve every problem that we have. You can't do that. And this is something we've emphasized on this podcast and on the website continually. 
It's what I say in my own podcast of think locally, act locally. If we can do anything politically, it's, it's going back to the wit and wisdom of Tidewater. Take care of your own. You have to learn how to how to manage yourself first. Then you worry. Then you have to manage your family. Then beyond that, and this is an outgrowth, an organic outgrowth of society. And if your society is not in order, your government is going to be bad. So in order to rescue government, we have to rescue ourselves. And by trying to maintain civilization and manners, that's one way to do it. He concludes by saying, Wendell Berry gives us the poet's view of the Southern tradition of society before government, saying it much better than I ever can. I sit in the shade of the trees of the land I was born in, and they are native. I am native, and I hold to this place as carefully as they hold to it. I do not see the national flag flying from the staff of the sycamore, or any decree of the government written on the leaves of the walnut. So also in this uh, quest to find the wit and wisdom of the South is masculinity, and I think that's the piece on the last two pieces, one by Dan Phillips, A Man's Interest, Sports in the South, where he talks about the recent Super Bowl and how the Atlanta Falcons lost to the New England Patriots. In so many ways, this was a devastating loss for the South because Again, New England beat the South, even though the quarterback for the Falcons was from Boston, so we'll, we'll excuse that. But uh, he talks about how millennials have really lost their interest in sports. Dan says, this is where our cerebral anti-sports signaling conservatives go wrong. They miss the visceral aspect. I hear this is changing with millennials, but when I was a kid, if you didn't like sports, you were considered odd, or how to put it this how to put this delicately, not particularly manly. You had to at least know something about sports so you could hold your own in a discussion. Lack of personal athletic prowess could even be compensated for to some degree by demonstrating excessive knowledge of, of and enthusiasm for sports. Those who could play, those who couldn't collected cards. In essence, sports fandom was the normal state. Not caring about sports marked you as an outsider. And so he continues, I, for one, find the decreased interest in sports among millennials a bit alarming. They don't lack interest for the right reasons. They lack interest in sports because they are more interested in video games, media, pop culture, etc. And this lack of interest reflects the increasing feminization of our culture and demonization of the traditional masculine virtues and millennials' increasing distance from traditional American society. He says, I feel the same way about millennials' declining interest in automobiles. When I was a kid, you were either a Ford man or a Chevy man with a few Mopar outliers, even if you didn't really know why. You just had to take a side. For today's millennials, the, di- the idea of picking a side in the Ford versus Chevy debate is a foreign concept. So here we have it. Uh, you know, He's saying, yeah, there's, there's problems with sports, and I identified some of those in uh, an article I wrote for Chronicles magazine. You know, ESPN has come a, a left-wing outlet. But sports themselves fulfills a very masculine part of humanity. Uh, and by not liking sports, you be, you're essentially feminizing yourself. It's the competition. It's the gentlemanly competition. And that's the thing about sports. You solve your differences in a gentlemanly way through good sportsmanship and conduct. Uh, it allows us to take out this very masculine part of our lives, the need for competition, in a way where we're not killing each other. 
when you lose that, you lose that masculine aspect of yourself, there is a need for competition. I think in some cases the video games um, fulfill that because the video game part of it is very competitive, but it's slovenly. You sit around and don't do anything. Sports may mean you had to get outside and play ball or whatever you're going to do, hunt or fish. These things required physical exertion. Playing a video game and eating Doritos does not require any physical exertion. And I think that's the part. You know, Jefferson says, as of the species of exercise, I advise the gun. Get out in the woods. Learn how to be a marksman. Or if you don't want to do that, throw a ball around. Run. Jump. Wrestle. Do things that make you feel like a man. When you don't do that, I think, I mean, physically... You're not as developed, but also you're developing more of your uh, feminine side. The estrogen levels, I'm sure, increase and testosterone levels decrease and all these things that, of course, are not particularly good for a male body. Uh, Also, you know, just in the way we look at society, these things were always seen to be pleasing to the opposite sex as a man is uh, more uh, athletic and uh, he physically develops uh, you have a much more likely interest from the female companionship. And so I guess in a, in a modern society, this may not be as important as millennials are increasingly moving away from traditional even norms in that way. But um, there are so many reasons why you should at least cultivate some of these things in your life. And again, the ideal man. Who was the ideal man in America? It was long George Washington, the Southerner, who was refined. His manners were perfect, but he also knew how to be a man. He was a hunter. He was an athlete. He was a soldier. Uh, he knew how to converse with men. He knew how to tell a joke. That's one thing that he knew how to tell stories. It's, these are things that uh, people forget when you have the quintessential man, that was important. It used to be taught how to be a quintessential man. And as the, the week we had where we talked about women, how to be the quintessential woman. How to do these things because that kept society whole. So we had a week with women. Now we're having a week where we're talking more about men. Uh, men should have read poetry. We just had some poetry. But this is important, to read poetry, to a to get in touch with that side, the spiritual side, the cerebral side that connects you with the environment. And getting out in the woods will do that. You feel connected with the environment around you, the world around you, and the land that you live on. So all these things are important to being a man. And the last piece, the Black Confederate and and the teddy bear, this is a piece about uh, Holt Collier and his uh, hunting trip with Teddy Roosevelt and how Teddy Roosevelt became the teddy bear. And this guy, Holt Collier, was uh, from Mississippi. He was born a slave in Mississippi, but uh, he had been freed, and he actually served in the Confederate Army. Um, But more than that, uh, he became uh, a great hunter, Uh, He claimed to have killed around 3,000 bears, and he was the guide of choice, he said in those days. And so Teddy Roosevelt hired to be a guide for a bear hunt. And after this bear killed one of Holt Collier's dogs, he tied the bear up and said, Roosevelt, you can get the the fatal shot. And Roosevelt declined to do so, and that's why he became known as the Teddy Bear. 
But this is important because men, I mean, this was seen as a great thing for a man to be an expert marksman, to kill bears, to have great hunting dogs, to be a hunting guide. And Roosevelt, being the man who always had to compensate for his lack of masculinity, wanted to come down to the south and meet this great hunter, this great guide, and go hunt bears. It was just seen as normal in the south in the early 20th century. This is what you did. Roosevelt was always trying to compensate for it. And as Collier said, Roosevelt was always asking for people about their opinion. As he's walking around and talking, he would, he would verify what he was saying with people. A man who's confident doesn't need to do that. A man who's confident gives his opinion and doesn't need verification or validity from someone else around them because he knows it's right. So that is the, the contrast between Roosevelt, who, of course, his mother was from Georgia, uh, but you know, uh, had to compensate for his Yankee shortcomings. So this is an important piece, as uh, Lunell McAllister points out, who wrote the piece. Uh, she says, you know, this is, we're in February, which is often considered to be Black History Month. Well, let's talk about all of black Southern history. And this guy's never discussed because he doesn't fit the PC narrative. But more than that, he doesn't fit the PC narrative because he was a man. You, you can't have that in modern society. So all of these pieces, I think, taken together, give us a nice picture of masculinity in the South, the wit and wisdom of the South, and why it's necessary to keep these things going. And if we can do anything moving forward, it's as people are vulgar and tell things and say things that should not be said, we need to call them out on. That's not what we do in the South. We have manners. We have respect for other people. These are things that we do. This is the Southern tradition. And as I think if more and more people did that and made clear, I see it all the time in social media, people that are, you know, believe in the Southern tradition, but they're vulgar. They come onto uh, social media pages and they curse and they, they do all kinds of things. They're just not necessary. It's not, pol it's not necessary in formal, polite society to do those things. So people need to be called out for that. So I hope you enjoyed this week of the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute, the podcast. Until next time, good day. Good day.